reading from Luke. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft he will burn with fire that never goes out. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The kids are invited to Kids Church, and you may be seated. The voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself, when he was about 30 years old, when he began his ministry, these are the words that Jamie read, and then that next section, which is an interesting sort of addition, is that the lectionary, the readings that were prescribed to us today, um, which we use, this is the last Sunday, we'll sort of use them for a little bit going forward, ends right before that, but there's this idea in which he is baptized, and then Luke feels the need to add, at 30 years old, this is when his ministry begins. And there's this connection between that baptism, that coming forth, that hearing, that voice from heaven, the physical appearance of a dove, which Luke adds, um, and this um, beginning of his ministry. This sermon is in some sense a two-part sermon. Um, the second part of the sermon comes for us the first Sunday of Lent. What happens in the way that the church has sort of condensed these gospel stories, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, is they sort of looked at the shape of them and they say, Epiphany is the scene of revelation. It's the scene of revealing. Epiphany is this um, brightness, this light that comes into the world. And so from the Christmas season, which we just ended, until um, Advent, or Lent, we sort of focus on these um, scenes of revelation, miracles, um, healings, things in which this person full of the Spirit is restoring creation to itself. The last of these, and every year this, this um, season ends with uh, the story of the transfiguration, which is preserved in those three Gospels as well, that Jesus goes up onto a mountain to pray with his disciples, and there again, a voice from heaven appears similar to the way it did in the baptism scene. Same thing, that this is my son. They are the three disciples here at whom I love. And that scene, um, that final epiphany, comes after this confession of faith. In all three Gospels, right before that, it is, it is Peter who confesses that he is Christ. Um, and what happens from there is that he, then he sets his face towards Jerusalem and the destruction um, and death that awaits him before his resurrection. Um, in Luke's gospel, which we're walking through this year, it's, it's particularly sharp. It says he sets his face towards Jerusalem, and everything from there is sort of set in the direction of Jerusalem where things come to a head. 
um, that that's what happens in Luke's gospel, which is our gospel for this year until um, the new year. And so that's the shape of the story. The second part of the sermon is the scene after this. Now, Luke puts a genealogy in between um, the announcement of the beginning of his ministry and this next scene, which is the second part of the sermon, in which this baptism is also a baptism to contend. The scene that immediately follows in Matthew and Mark is that in, with, in between a genealogy and Luke is this time in which he goes into the desert to, con, uh, to contend with Satan, the devil. Um, he has this time of meeting him. He's offered three different temptations um, for power, for food, for, for this idea of meeting people's need, and he resists in, in all three of them. In one of the Gospels, it said that then Satan goes away and comes back again at an opportune time, which is at um, the time of betrayal back in Jerusalem. But this scene isn't complete in itself, is what I'm trying to say, is that you have this blessing, you have this good news, you have this epiphany, and what immediately happens after this is that the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, um, reliving the story of Israel and their temptations in many ways, and contends with the devil. And so um, today, you know, in a lot of ways, the focus is on blessing. God's blessing and call of Jesus in this baptism. This revelation that this one here is the Son of God in whom God is well pleased. This spirit and this Trinitarian, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revelation being sort of revealed at this time as the voice in heaven speaks as the Father, the, the dove um, descends as the form of the Spirit, and there is the Son of God himself praying. That We see all three actors in that moment. But if we chop that off from the contending, we can miss the point of the blessing it isn't just to be blessed but it's to go into the world and go and face that greatest enemy of all. And interestingly, doesn't confront the enemy in the sense of um, the type of cosmic fight we might think, but through temptations that we face as well. And so the second half of the sermon comes in Lent. Um, after we've sort of walked through these epiphanies, these revelations, and we'll revisit it then to see what it means to contend with those things in our lives. What I've said here today is that Luke is our gospel for this year. This is the one we're going to walk with. Um, Luke's animal uh, on this is the ox. Um, so we have Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John on this one. Uh, Matthew, um, and it's interesting to think about the way each of these four Gospels starts. Matthew starts with the genealogy. Um, these beasts, these, these images, come from very early in church history, and, and one of the, the ways in which they come is through the, um, the book of Ezekiel. They pair these, these images with each of the Gospels writers. Matthew begins with the genealogy. Um, this is a man. Uh, this is this one. It's a genealogy that connects to David. Uh, Mark, the lion one, begins with, in the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then John's in the wilderness. Um, that whole gospel is framed in intensity and speed. Um, uh, the word immediately, immediately this, immediately that, I, I believe occurs 43 times in Mark's gospel. It's like um, an action movie. Uh, and so it gets the image of the lion. 
John, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, this cosmic beginning. And so you have this eagle that sort of takes up the symbol of that one, that it's sort of looking from on high on what these Gospels are going to be about. So Luke gets the ox um, up there. We have um, one of the early pictures of the ox, very prompt. Um, And when you look at the first words of the Gospel of Luke, many have undertaken to draw up an account to the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully invested in everything from beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theolopius, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Um, I don't know about you, but I look at that ox and I see orderly. I've set amount to put an orderly account together. Now the ox is, is partially picked for Luke because of the sacrificial system and the way that that plays in Luke. Last week we looked at Simeon and Anna and, and um, Jesus' family bringing, um, bringing the sacrifice and Jesus sort of being inscribed with the sacrificial system. This is who Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke. But you can see in each of the beginnings of these four different Gospels, you have different sort of ways in which the story is going to be told. Genealogy, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, um, which has this resonances with Genesis as well, this whole new thing, Mark. Um, In the beginning was the word John, this cosmic sort of making. Um, And then Luke, who wants to set out this orderly account of the things that have been described and said. Um, He wants to sort of organize these things into a way in which they, they may have happened. So this Sunday, this year, is our year through the Gospel of Luke. These are available in the back. These are the NLT, translation of the Gospel of Luke, um, and they're the NLT because that was the one on sale. So I do not have a preferred Bible translation that I think you should always use, but they are the NLT. You can grab one uh, on the way out in the back. They have um, nice uh, text on one side and then a place to take notes on the other or Rosie and I when we bring these home uh, occasionally at night we'll open up a page we'll read the page together and then we'll try to paint something from the page it is a great source of shame for me um, um, my artistic skills and whatever but it's a way of sort of like illuminating the text and I think it makes it memorable in a different way so you can read a page you can paint you can take notes you can do whatever you want with it there's one other thing they have this filament study app available. So if you are the type of person who likes to know more about what's going on, the filament study Bible is good. You can scan, set it up on your phone, you scan a page, and then it has a study Bible connected to every page that you're on. So um, that's another feature of these. Like I said, it's not an endorsement of any of this, except for they were on sale, but they contain the gospel of Luke within them, which is the real point. And one of the things that I try to, to say every year is like to sit down and to read through one from beginning to end. Now, Luke's a little bit longer. You may read one half and then the other half another day. But to have the whole story laid out before you. In Christianity today, we're, we're tempted to sort of like splice the text. And so much so that like when you Google, for instance, the passages we read this morning, you'll only see that right at the top of the page. No even need to open up a Bible app or a Bible. But with this, hopefully, I'm praying you can sit and read through all of it at once or maybe all of it in two or three different settings. But to hear what Luke's trying to say, what in his orderly account he's trying to lay out before you. 
And the reason we do this every year is because the church in its wisdom, and I think many modern people think in its lack of wisdom, has given us four portraits who Jesus, who Jesus is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Most of us, I think, would prefer one. So we wouldn't have these weird different versions of the events. We wouldn't have uh, John coming at it from a whole different angle. We wouldn't have uh, two different genealogies. Uh, Matthew's takes a much different way of telling the story than Luke's. We have the sense in the modern world that like if uh, uh, all of truth is based on like the most reliability of it. The church in its wisdom did not have that vision of sort of trying to condense these gospels into one. Two people actually try to do it. One, uh, Marcion, uh, which is a heresy that says, you know, all the Old Testament is bad, this, that, and the other. He takes a version of the Gospel of Luke and cuts off different portions of it and makes that his one gospel. And then another person in the 300 says, why don't we just blend them all together and, and make one gospel, putting all the portions in order in the way in which we want. And both of them end up condemned as heretics. So um, let us not do that. Um, But I think if we sit with each one, each of these portraits, we begin to appreciate something differently about who Jesus is. We begin to see how he is preserved for us. If any of you watched um, the Netflix show, The Queen, Winston Churchill goes towards the end of his life and sits for his portrait many times. And the portrait that comes out is this um, grumpy-looking sort of man at the old of his li- end of his life, illuminated in such a way that says his light is fading, and yet he is trying to hold on to it. And see, that's the point of a portrait, right? Like, the portrait wasn't just to paint Winston Churchill as accurately as it could, but to hold forth where he was and who he was in that moment. One at the end, one with his power fading if we open our hearts and come to the Gospels individually, we'll too find these different ways of displaying the power and portrait of who Jesus is in ways that I think would expand our souls in different ways. For instance, Matthew has these long teaching portions, five of them throughout his Gospel, whereas Luke intersperses them with stories, um, some of the similar teachings, too. And how does that change that, that these teachings are now illuminated by things that Jesus does in his life? How he walks around the road of life together. And so I think it's important for us to hear all these things in their, in their unique voice so that we can hear Jesus clearer. Luke is trying to give us a specific portrait of who Jesus is. In this case, an orderly one, um, which Matthew was offended by. No, uh, the, um, uh, but this is the way in which these are preserved for us, and I think it's wise for us to listen to them, to open our hearts and our minds to them. And Luke, so far in the gospel, has been pulling together all these various different threads and placing them together. So immediately after this um, is the birth of John the Baptist being foretold, and this thread of sort of the Old Testament coming to fruition in this one in John, this last prophet of the old age. Following that scene is the Annunciation to Mary, that there's this virgin. And so you have this contrast in the way that Luke is setting up the story of, of the last of the old age, a barren family is given child. In the advent of a new age, a virgin shall conceive and give birth. 
And that scene then continues sort of in this birth of Jesus in which uh, not at Temple, but at Bethlehem, which is this other thread he's trying to pull in this connection to David, this Davidic line. Um, he'll use words from Isaiah to connect to John, comfort your people, and, and this sort of um, flattening of the world that's coming about. He'll use words from the angels on high to sort of say to glory in the highest, this revelation of one that is happening here. He'll use in Simeon and Anna, these people who wait at the temple awaiting this one, that the locus of what God is doing is still connected to what God has done in Israel, which is what Luke has done with multiple of these threads, trying to tie it to what's happened in the past and this advent of this new thing. And then in the scene that we didn't get to this year, the temple scene, um, that Jesus is one who goes back to this temple, and when his parents find him there as he is lost, he says, didn't you think I'd be in my father's house doing my father's business? It's one who has this connection to the father in that way. And so I think it's right that Luke says at this point, then after the baptism, that Jesus begins his public ministry. It's like he's pulled together all the meaning from the Old Testament and some of this new stuff all together to make this point of here is this one. Now finally, in the water, revealed as such as the one, the Son of God, um, that he begins his public ministry, that he goes forth from that. And so he pulled all these threads together to make sort of this point of where are we going from here. And the last one of those in Luke's gospel is this baptism scene, is this one of him getting in the water. Now, uh, Luke has the shortest story of the baptism scene. When all the people were getting baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. This is the whole um, sorry, I'll try to get it up on the screen. Um, that's about yeah, we'll skip that. Um, yeah, very short, the shortest of the slides. When all the people are getting baptized, the Luke has this very short portion of it. Now, in early church history, there was this conundrum about why does Jesus get baptized? The baptism that John proclaims, he says, is for the forgiveness of sins and repentance. Jesus is this one who is without sin. Why does he go out to the wilderness, to the waters, to see John and to enter into this baptism? Why is he one who goes to this place um, and is received into these uh, sinful people. Which when you think about it, the early church comes up with different ways of making sense of this. That he is this one who has to go to those places. The first one that they come up with is that he's an example, which is probably the weakest to me, but it does make sense. That Christ is an example of like, if this is where Israel is being fulfilled, if this is where the people are gathering, if John is my forerunner, I go to where this is happening. And himself, he submits himself to being where this thing is going to begin and take place. That's why I think Luke immediately after says that this is when his public ministry can begin. He goes all the way to that moment. Uh, one of the the pseudo-gospels that comes out much later has this funny teaching that his whole family goes, and so he goes along with them, which I think is... Incredibly lame. Um, uh, 
and obviously that gospel is not included in our in our text at all but uh funny enough uh that's one reason they came up with for why jesus might also get baptism family peer pressure um luckily that one is not included in our canon uh, there's this other possibility that sometimes appears in the Gospels is that he's a disciple of John, which isn't foreclosed to us. Um, it's a possibility that he is one who's gathered with John, and after receiving this baptism in Epiphany, he goes off to do his own ministry. And this is why you'll find John's disciples in different gospel scenes coming to Jesus, asking him, are you the one, what's going on here, this, that, and the other, that relationship between the two of them. It could also be there's a bit of tension, perhaps in the first century, that John still has disciples. After Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and the church is beginning to form, there are still people committed to John waiting for something. And so this example of Jesus going through this and participating in this as the greater one whom John was talking about that Jamie read for us is the point to say, Get on board, guys. It's all pointing to this one whom hears the voice at the sign, at the baptism that your teacher was performing, but is now transformed onto this one. Go forward in that. One of the ones that really takes over in the first centuries, which I think, or in the early centuries of the church, which is, I think, important for us, is that he is one whom holiness goes forth from. You'll see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus goes to all these things that would be ritually unclean and sanctifies them. And so as we think in our lives, um, you go somewhere that's dirty, you get dirty. And this was heightened in the Jewish imagination. If you were to walk through a graveyard, even if you thought you hadn't stepped over a body, you would probably go through rite of purification because you might have. And that made you ritually unclean. That, the, that pollution sort of existed, of uncleanliness existed, and it was your duty to avoid it. And I think there's rich teaching in that. This isn't to say Jews were backwards. I think that they were supposed to be these people crafted towards life, and uncleanliness wasn't sinfulness. Uncleanliness was ways in which you became ritually unclean through, often in the ancient mind, associations with death, um, associations with decay. Um, but that was the world in which Jesus is born into. And what he is, is he's one, and when he enters those places, they don't denigrate him. They don't make him dirty. Life and glory comes out of him so much that they are purified. So when Jesus is in the huddle, as Luke says, of all the people coming forth to get baptized— the repentance of sins. He is the one purifying that spot himself. He is not made dirty by it. He cleanses it. And so too he calls the church and his disciples into that kind of relationship. It's important to think carefully because we may say, well, that enables us to go into all sorts of places and purify them through our presence. As a psychologist um, I like says, he was the almighty son of God and you're you. Um, which is to say, we often don't always know why we're going to the places we go. But if we go with the spirit, with Jesus with us, if we have that in our lives, we can go in the same way he did and eclipse them into holiness. You do need prayer to discern that. Because sometimes you might go because it's cool. 
Sometimes you might go because that's where you want to be anyways, which is like cloaking that in your own sense of, of depravity, I guess. I've never done that. Um, just to be clear, uh, I think that's my main temptation with this one. Or in some sense that it makes us acceptable, that I can go but not call those places towards transformation. See, when Jesus goes to them, those places of death now become places of life. Sometimes when I convince myself that these are places I can go to and bring the light and life that Jesus' spirit is upon me, and I go as that cleansing agent that he went to, I go, I shut up, and I don't do anything. And so the place remains the same. If we're going to go in that way in this sort of missional push that Luke is going to pick up in his second book, the book of Acts, You want to go with that mindset that these can be transformed because I go with God to these places. I go with Jesus and I've been called into his story. It should be noted that there are also places, you know, it would be unwise perhaps to send alcoholics into bars. To say, well, that's your temptation. We'll send you there to transform that place point I'm trying to make is it's possible for us to go forward in those ways, but we do need to discern, and we do need to pray to figure out where God is calling us to be that which light and life and holiness and goodness comes through so that these places are now good, that life now reigns in these places. Which brings us to the the last reason, which I think is, I mean, we could come up with more But um, why Jesus goes, he goes with uh, solidarity with humanity. If he is going to take on all the sinfulness, all the destruction of humanity, he needs to go where we're releasing that for him to pick it up. This is the great theologian, uh, Karl Barth of the last century. No one who came to the Jordan was as laden and as afflicted as he. No one was as needy. No one so utterly human became so fellow human. No one confessed his sins so sincerely, so truly as his own, with outside glances at others. He stands alone in this. He who was elected and ordained from all eternity to partake of the sin of all in his own person, to bear its shame and curse in the place of all, to be the man responsible for all, and as such, wholly theirs to live and act and suffer. This is what Jesus began to do when he had himself baptized by John with all the others. This was the opening of his history as salvation history of all the others. There's a quote on the back of the bulletin. But Jesus goes as the one most fully aware of what's being done in that moment. If you were to say, if you've seen a Billy Graham altar call, everybody come forth and receive Jesus. What, what Barden, I think Luke are trying to say is the one who goes forth most wholly into that is Jesus himself because he's aware of all the cost of it. He's aware of everybody else, what they're bringing without side glance, and he takes it all in his salvation history himself. So his ministry can begin because all of this is overlaid upon him. And later in in Luke's gospel, he's going to talk about his baptism being a baptism unto death, too. I have a baptism which I will undergo. And baptism, waters, for instance, 
for the Jews have this connotation of both death and life. The Exodus story is the story of this birth of these new people. But it's also a death of letting go of the old things. And so we're invited into that. Jesus hears this voice from heaven. Um, This is my son. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. Reveals this Trinitarian act, this fullness in creation. Um, I want to end with one last quote slash story. Um, Mere Christianity is this great book by C.S. Lewis. It's classic for lots of good reasons. It's dated for lots of reasons too. But the discipleship portion at the end I find highly important. And he's got this portion at the end where he says, I'm going to explain the Trinity to you. And everybody says, I shouldn't. Um, but I'm going to do it anyways because you're adults, not children, which I love the way he says that, is, is that we are people who can think, we can engage, we can be. But the way he captures this is in talking about prayer. The new year is this time we have to think about ourselves a lot in our culture. But today, we've got a chance to think about God a lot. What Jesus does in his baptism and undertaking these ways But this last quote I want to read is just this way in which C.S. Lewis, in a way that he can only break down, this idea of what prayer is in revelation of who God is as Father and Son and Spirit. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the mode of power. God is also on the road or the bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The man is being caught up into the higher kinds of life. What I call Zoe or spiritual life, he is being pulled into God by God while remaining himself. And this in classic C.S. Lewis languages, and that is how theology started. Jesus' prayer, standing there at the waters as he's taken all this on, He is praying. The Spirit's enlightened to him. And he hears a voice. What C.S. Lewis, I think, is trying to say is that through Christ, all of this is possible for us in some way. Not in the same way. We're not Christ. In the sense in which our prayers, we can um, become the people who see the dove, the Spirit which enlivens our lives. We can hear the voice of the Father. And we can be standing next to Jesus, who is the one who bears those things for us. So as we enter into this new year, um, I think it's helpful to think about prayer, the ways in which God can be attentive to us in that, and we can receive and be attentive as well.
As I said, the next scene is one of contending. Let us pray. God, Luke, through your spirit, has set an orderly account for us of the things in which Jesus underwent so that we may trust in them. During this season until Easter, draw us into the story of your son, Jesus Christ, as preserved for us in the Gospel of Luke so that we may grow to worship him, to be near him, to become like him. And in seeing the baptism scene, may we see how he takes on the burdens that we carry. He purifies that which is contaminated in himself. He brings life to the places of death. So much so that we await his resurrection from death and that freedom into new life. May I ask all this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.